This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. A few decades ago, a new form of worship entered evangelicalism, and it wasn't long before the lion's share of churches were embracing it. It was the advent of contemporary worship music, choruses or praise music, usually led by a praise team and accompanied by drums and guitars and keyboards. And these days in many churches, that early 70s or 80s sound has morphed into loud, hard rock music in which you can barely understand what is even being sung. And yes, I know how old that makes me sound, but let's face it, it's true. Is there a coming shift, though, in the contemporary music that so many churches have embraced in their worship? And is contemporary worship music actually on the decline? Well, my next guest says it is, and for a number of very good reasons. So joining me today is Dr. T. David Gordon. He is professor of religion and Greek at Grove City College, where he has taught courses in religion and media ecology, Greek and humanities. Prior to that, he taught at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and is the author of Why Johnny Can't Preach and Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic on which he has written, The Imminent Decline of Contemporary Worship Music. And it's so good to talk to you again, Dr. Gordon. How are you? I'm fine, Janet. Thanks for having me. Oh, wonderful to have you. And I know you've written about this, uh, you know, a while ago, but this is still such an important issue for people. What do you make of the decline of contemporary worship music? Well, first, you know, I was a little surprised uh, when I when I learned some time ago that it was declining. I, I, you know, I first got this observation from Mark Mooring at Christianity Today, um, probably seven or eight years ago. He mentioned to me that. If you can think of the balance of a seesaw on the playground, for a number of years, um, the, uh, the contemporary had been on the ascendancy, and he was observing that now he thought that it had peaked out, and if anything, uh, it was moving back down. Now, neither he nor I predicted where we are in terms of a perfect balance, of course, just that uh, the, uh, if there's any motion now, the motion is in the direction of returning to historic liturgy and historic hymnody. That is so interesting. What turned the tide, would you say? I know that you study this very closely, but where did that tipping point occur? Well, the, uh, you know, I mentioned eight reasons in my little the, uh, article that's out there on the Internet here and there, um, and, and I think that they did converge at roughly the same time. Um, and so I think you know, some of my earlier uh, items, I think, are the more important. The first one was that the contemporary worship music not only was ordinarily worse than traditional hymnody, it had to be worse. Yeah. Because once you commit yourself to selecting the best of only one generation's hymns, that competes with selecting the best from 50 generations of hymns. Yes. So previous hymn writers and editors who put the collections together, they had the best of the old Greek hymns, the Latin hymns, the German hymns, and so forth that were translated to English, and they could choose the pick of the litter. Once a church had decided to sing only hymns written in the last 20 or 25 years, it's really not fair to expect any generation in a 25-year period to compete with 2,000 years of good hymnody. Right. 
Exactly. And so, you know, part of what many of us found, which is that the music didn't match the lyrics, the music wasn't very good, the lyrics weren't very good. Uh, it seems to me that uh, early on we realized we had a problem, and that's why even many of the contemporary churches, fairly early on, I would say in the last decade or decade and a half, they started taking classic hymns and setting them to more contemporary musical settings. Right. Which is as much as their way of conceding that they couldn't compete with all of these great lyricists over the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. And it would be better to accept their lyrics and just set them to a more contemporary setting. Now, I don't think that needed to be done myself, but it was a, sta- it was a candid concession, effectively by doing it, that the lyrics of the, re- of the recent generation simply cannot compete with the best lyrics of 40 or 50 generations. No, you're absolutely right. And and what also has been an issue is something that you mentioned, that the better contemporary hymns are now so overused that people are really sick of them. And they're saying, let's go back to something older, something substantial, because we just can't keep singing these same four songs over and over and over. That's right. Even the Gubbins, I think How Deep the Father's Love is really quite a good hymn. I'm not crazy about In Christ Alone, but it's an adequate hymn that probably would have gotten into the hymnal on its own merits in time. Uh, it's a decent enough hymn. Uh, but, you know, you sing those eight, ten times a year, and suddenly Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress sounds refreshing. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's the way it is. Well, and what about the aspect of how it sounds dated? I mean, people have said for years that whatever we're singing as praise choruses in the church at any given moment is contemporary music from about 15 years ago. Did we just? Yeah, I think that's always the danger of trying to be uh, hip or with it or contemporary in its true Latin sense, right dead center in the middle of the time. By the time you learn the idiom and produce any work of art that satisfies that idiom, in the nature of the commercial demands, uh, that idiom is now passe. Right. Well, and so this- no one, uh, we might be listening to 50 Cent today and so forth, um, but we're not listening uh, to, to Boy George anymore from the 80s or anything like that. Uh, those people are already way back in the past. And even, you know, my generation, the Clapton and the Who and stuff, they're they're called classic rock. Yes. They're already so old, they're classic rock. And, you know, we were listening to them 35 and 40 years ago. That's right. Well, what about not being able to mimic modern music? I suppose you could imitate a Taylor Swift or something like that. But when you're talking about rap, it's a little harder to pass that off, I would say, on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I think that that's right. The music does have meaning. I know our generation is uh, aesthetically relativist, and it doesn't like to concede the point. But we all know that music has meaning, that if you and I had a group of fifth graders, and without lyrics, we just played them the musical score, uh, maybe simplified just for piano, for instance, of uh, Bach's Mass in B minor, and let's suppose we chose just the At Resurrexit on the one hand and played it without lyrics, and then we played also the crucifixus uh, and asked them which of these was about the death of Jesus and which was about his resurrection. Well, you know, 100% of the students would get it right. right. Uh, the one is very, very plaintive. It's poignant. It's quiet. It's sad. It's reflective. The other is magnificently triumphant. It's filled with joy and triumph in uh, life. And so even fifth graders be able to say, without any lyrics at all, this music has this kind of meaning with it. It carries all sorts of stuff with it. And so the, some of the contemporary uh, artistic forms available to us today 
probably simply would not be proper to the Christian liturgy. Mm -hmm. They just would never be proper, regardless of what words you put into them. That's true. And it's interesting to note that when we're swinging the other way, churches are doing it differently. Because I see in some churches that I've been in, they'll try to do hymns, but they still want them to sound contemporary. Uh, They don't start introducing the hymn books again to people. It's all up on the screen now. What are your thoughts on that whole trend of everything is electronically projected and you're no longer... Because one of the things that I really appreciated growing up and still appreciate is by having a hymn book, you were able to sing the parts. You were able to follow the music and read the music. And what what are your thoughts on you know the loss of that and, and yet this morphing of hymns into sort of an entertainment setting? Well, the uh, yeah, I, I agree on two points. Uh, one is the uh, the observation my wife and I have made through the years is the only people that we know who know music and like contemporary worship music are people who are in the praise chorus yeah. or praise team. Yes. Because they do rehearse ahead of time and they have the music. Right. But the people that we know who know music who aren't in the praise team always dislike the contemporary because we love to sing heartily and we can sing parts and yet they've taken the parts away from us. And so what happens then is those of us who've had the privilege and the joy of learning to read music no longer benefit from that privilege because the musical score has been taken away. And as a media ecologist, uh, I would remind that it took as long to develop our current musical notation as it did to develop the first alphabets. It took about five centuries in each case. Now, we're talking... 4,000 years ago for the one and 500 years ago for the other, 800 to 500. But back roughly in the time of Moses, it took 500 years to develop a true alphabetic script. And it was an enormous achievement when they did because they they converted or translated an oral uh, auditory reality into a visual. Hang on, Dr. Gordon. We'll come back talking about the imminent decline of contemporary worship music. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. 
I was afraid, I was scared, I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. The battle for life has heated up in our country, and standing for life is more difficult than ever. The Ministry of Preborn empowers young women in crisis to choose life. By letting an expectant mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see him on an ultrasound, she's 80% more likely to choose life for her baby. She did let me hear the heartbeat, and I was like, wow, it's something like living inside of me. It was a beautiful thing to hear. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today and help women with crisis pregnancies choose life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. We really need your help during these summer months when donations tend to slow down. Please help right now if you can. 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a Preborn banner to click at Janet Meffer. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Well, times certainly do change in evangelicalism, and could it be that the era in which we're now living is the era of the imminent decline of contemporary worship music? We're talking it over with Dr. T. David Gordon from Grove City College. Dr. Gordon, we were talking about music, and you were mentioning how long it took, what, 500 years to get the sort of hymnody that we had. Four to five centuries it took to convert this remarkable thing uh, that was auditory into a visual thing. And then, of course, music exploded then after the 13th and 14th centuries, because once you could notate it, you could write profoundly more complicated pieces of music, and and uh, you didn't have to learn it all by ear. Right. Sixteen people who could read music together, let's say four a piece on four parts, could get together and sight read the piece, and then maybe rehearse it once or twice and do fairly complex music that used to have to be learned by rote. Yes. So music, once you learn to read musical notation, and it isn't difficult, then you can learn brand new places. My wife and I, when we started attending the Anglican Church nine years ago, we ran into some Anglican hymns we'd never heard before, but we sang them gustily because we could sight read and we got there early. We read through it and learned how the hymn went, and I would learn the bass and tenor lines, and we could sing right along because we could read music. Right. That's it. But you know, but when we-, we take away the musical score from the congregation... Um, we might as well take away uh, printed Bibles and say, well, let's go back to learning the Psalter the way the Israelites did, where they came to the temple or tabernacle Mm. and recited them again and again and again until they learned them. Uh, None of us would think of giving up the advantage of written language, so I don't know why we would think of giving up uh, the advantages of written musical notation also. Oh, that's an excellent point. And the problem, a lot of people will notice this as well in their churches or churches they visit. Whenever I've been in a church that has a praise chorus, a praise team, and a whole worship band thing going on, you look around the church and almost no one is singing. And part of the reason for that is everything is performed in such a way that you're not really sure how that one bar how long it's going to last. They might draw out the long note for eight counts. They might only do it for two counts and then move on. You can't really anticipate how they will do the song such that you can sing along with it. Yeah, that was one of the problems with the praise team from the beginning is the, um, the confusion of participatory music and performance music. Yes. With performance music, we love to have some variety. If we have uh, uh, Brahms developing a piece by an earlier person, we don't mind listening to that develop for 12, 13 minutes because he does different things with it. And so if James Taylor wants to vary 
uh, how he does a particular stanza or vary the instrumental accompaniment between it, that actually provides a certain level of interest for those who are hearing it as a performance. Yes. But for participatory music, where the whole goal is for the participation of the people involved, as I sometimes put it, I feel like the third grader who someone says to me, here, come sit beside me, and just as I'm halfway down towards sitting down, he pulls the chair out from under me, <laughs> and I fall on the floor, and everyone laughs, and it's great comedy. Uh, well, I feel like the praise team does the same thing. They won't accompany, ordinarily, two stanzas consecutively the same way. And so you don't know what they're going to do. All you're forced to do, therefore, is to sing tentatively because you're sort of listening while singing because you don't know what they will be up to next. That's so true. Well, now, getting back to your points about why you believe there is this imminent decline of contemporary worship music, another point that you raise is that it isn't any longer a competitive advantage for churches to have part or all of a service in a contemporary idiom. Has there been this tipping point now on modern music in churches that it's not something that you can employ and hope that people across town will come to your church instead? Yeah, I think that's what Mark Mooring was observing back around 2007 or 2008. I think what he was observing was so many churches now do either part or all of their worship as contemporary that it's no longer something that distinguishes you from other churches. And so you're, you're now forced uh, to compete, as it were, on other grounds because that ground doesn't do it anymore. That's the problem. And what about the emptiness? Because when the novelty wears off, as you point out, what is left seems rather empty. What have you observed in, on that score? Well, you know, novelty uh, is, a, is an appropriate experience for the human in the sense that we, we love to discover new things. Uh, I love to discover a new poet. I, I ran into Jane Kenyon this summer now. She's deceased since 1995, but I discovered her poetry and, and read the entire collection this summer. It's always a joy uh, to find a new composer, uh, a new poet. Uh, and so I understand the human joy in experiencing novelty. The question is this. If Jane Kenyon is really good, I will be enjoying her poetry 30 years from now. Hmm. And not just because it's novel, not because she is a new distinctive voice, but because she's a good voice. Yes, right. And so, so much of uh, what we had with the contemporary worship music was aesthetically, all that commended it was its novelty. And then once we've had 8, 10, 12, 20, or 25 years of it, that's no longer a sufficient commendation. We actually want it to be good. Well, that's the problem. And for those of us who are are very much into sacred music and hymnody, one of our arguments has been, why would you do something worse that the church has done better in the past? I'm not against new for the sake of new, but I'm not for new for the sake of new. And that's the problem. If you have people who say we must do something new because it's new, what is the sense of that when it's disconnecting you in many regards from the church universal? Yeah, well, at that point, unfortunately, it was a failure of, of Romans 12, 1 and 2, wasn't it? Yeah. We didn't realize that contemporaneity itself is a cultural value that has been dropped on us by commerce. Mm. Commercial forces love to sell nine-tenths of what they sell by the adjective new. Uh, tide is new or improved and so forth. And so everything they sell to us, they sell by first selling the currency of newness. Right. And, and so unfortunately, we just kind of went along with the culture on this point. And, and uh, I would say unwittingly embrace the notion that newer is better. I don't recall any theologians arguing that newer was more, was more consistent with Christianity um, than, than what is old. If you have something that is new, 
it's almost as if in some respects you can't criticize it because it is new and because you need to get with it. I mean, this is what an entire generation of the church had been told. You look around, you know, at the senior generation and they put up with all the uh, new stuff from the 60s generation. I guess this is what the kids want. But now the kids seem to want in, in some places the old again. So it's changed. It's shifted. It has changed. Yeah, you may recall that I mentioned that, thankfully, my generation is dying. Yes. <laughs> so those of us who were reared in the 60s, uh, the Jesus Freak, Woodstock, uh, hippie generation, uh, when we became old enough to be the deacons and elders and pastors of churches, we assumed that our rebellion was a universal reality and that the young people today also experienced it. Yeah. What right. I find here teaching at the, at the college is just the opposite. My students are longing for something that is rooted, something that's lasting, something that won't be gone and replaced by the latest iPhone tomorrow, as it were. Mm -hmm. They grew up in a world in which everything is rapidly changing, and they love to hang on every now and then to something that has legs, something that will last for a while. So the crazy thing is we're now cooking up a liturgy for them that they do not want but that our generation wanted. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I wouldn't wish I'm your generation... I'm very confident that once I'm dead and gone and fishing with Simon Peter and my generation's <laughs> gone with me, that the next generation, the generation of my students, they will, with perfect good sense and judgment, uh, discover the richness of the historic Christian liturgies and hymns, and, of course, also uh, encourage our contemporary liturgists and hymn writers to write good stuff to add to that. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Now, what about the praise team issue? You addressed this as well, that praise teams have been problematic. What is the problem with praise teams, would you say? The problem with the praise team is it's neither fish nor fowl. It's neither performance nor is it participatory. From the point of view of the performers, they feel like they are being held back too much and not permitted to perform because there's always some kind of restraint or restriction on them. Yeah. But from the point of a participant in the congregation, we can't participate when they are doing the kinds of varieties and variations that performers do. And so it, it, they aren't really accompanists. What they are is performers that allow us to sort of join them from time to time. But that isn't, of course, what the Holy Scriptures command in terms of our praise of God. It commands congregational praise. Right. The entire redeemed community is supposed to lift their voices together and will in eternity. So the, the, the problem is the praise team feels like it's not being permitted to perform enough, and those of us who understand the corporate nature of Christian worship think they're being permitted to perform too much. Yes. Well, and I thought it interesting that you said many pastors have told you that they wish the whole praise team thing would go away because it's such a source of tension. And That's I, correct. I, yeah, when you read that, I said, then why don't you do away with it? These people can serve the church in other ways. We don't have to have them. Why, why don't more pastors say, hey, let's go in another direction? I think part of it is that uh, very few pastors today are trained in seminary in the history of liturgy or music. And as a consequence, uh, many of the people that I know as pastors who sort of go along with this, the only reason they do so is they say, well, you know, I've got some people in my congregation who play guitar, they're talented musicians, I've heard them at Christian coffee houses and things, and they really want to do this, and who am I to say no, because I don't really know anything about this. That's the problem. So yeah. I think part of it is it's a, it's a defect of our seminary training. And, of course, I taught at Gordon-Conwell 14 years, and I taught the course on worship, Presbyterian worship at least. Uh, and I know that many people graduate without a sufficient grounding in the theology of worship and certainly without an adequate grounding in music. 
And because of that, they just don't feel that they can have a firm opinion. So even though technically they're the pastor, they don't have any reason to choose one choice over another. And so they default to the people in the congregation who want them to do it one way. But of course, for a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> and, and if you've got two lovely Christian musicians in your church who play guitar, of course they're going to recommend guitar accompaniment. That's what they've been playing since they were children. That's it. That's it. And so by default, because the minister doesn't have a leg to stand on in the conversation, he ends up allowing these two guitarists to play. If he had two saxophonists, he'd probably have the two saxophonists play. Or two trumpeters, he'd probably have the two trumpeters play. (laughs) Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. We'll put up the imminent decline of contemporary worship music. Dr. T. David Gordon, thank you so much, Dr. Gordon. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Janet. Great to be with you. All right, you take care. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. For more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back. Remember several years ago when President Obama said, I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism? Well, there are a lot of people who weighed in on that remark. And at the time, a lot of us, I think, rightly objected to this idea that all countries either consider themselves to be exceptional or actually are exceptional in the exact same way that America does and is. But is there more to the picture of American exceptionalism as a concept when you actually examine it theologically? This is a question we're going to be examining today with Dr. John Wilsey. He is Assistant Professor of History and Christian Apologetics at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of the book we'll be discussing called American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea. Dr. Wilsey, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks a lot, Janet. Glad to be with you. Thank you. All right. What would you say is the best working definition of American exceptionalism as it has been traditionally understood? Okay. Well, let me just try to break this down. Um, I I argue in the book that there are two ways that American exceptionalism can be understood and defined. Yes. One is a theological way, and one is a political or a social way. The, The theological way presents America as a normatively superior nation to all other nations in history. The political or social way is to cast America as unique and different, um, special in that it introduces to the world, uh, you know, constitutional democracy, representative democracy. Uh, It's the first country founded um, as a result of breaking away from a mother country, a colonial uh, system. Uh, it's the first country to be to, to begin to, to begin its career, um, you know, right before the Enlightenment, um, and the first democracy to be founded right before the uh, right before the um, you know nineteenth century, the Industrial Revolution, right after the Enlightenment, I should say. Mm-hmm. And um, so, in that regard, um, it, it, it sort of sheds this idea of God of, of, of America being God's chosen nation. 
Right. So now let's talk about the theological way first and foremost, because you said the theological way is the one that looks upon America as superior to all, uh, maybe America as a chosen nation. What are the roots of that going back in time? Yeah, so going back, I mean, I I trace the roots back to the Puritans um, who come to this come to this continent um really uh, the first uh, puritans per se come in 1630 and found the Massachusetts Bay colony mm-hmm. under the leadership of the first governor John Winthrop who famously called America uh, famously called the colony that they were starting uh, a city on a hill he said we shall be as a city on a hill um and their understanding of their uh, political community that they were establishing on on this continent was that they were going to be in covenant with God in much the same way as the ancient Israelites were in covenant with God back in the Old Testament. That's how they saw themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they saw themselves as having been chosen by God. They saw themselves as being a new Israel. Uh, they looked at their experiences through uh, typological lenses. So they're coming over, uh, their sojourn across the Atlantic Ocean was something that they kind of likened to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. and. They saw their land uh, as a sacred land, as a promised land, like a new Canaan. Um, they were concerned about living a holy life, and they were worried that if they strayed from God's uh, good will for them, that they would be judged. And certainly that's how they read um, some of the signs of the times. They had a very strong view of providence and, and so forth. So sure. they saw themselves in very theological terms, and Americans would later inherit much of that view and um, apply it to themselves later on. Now, when we get to the founders, though, in the 18th century, we, mm-hmm. we don't see the same uh, thought, the same theological thought process, certainly not from somebody like Thomas Jefferson, and yet they're, they're taking the principles of the Enlightenment and mm-hmm. bringing them to bear on this new world. What happened, uh, just historically speaking, in terms of how Americans thought about America between the times of the early Puritans, the early Pilgrims, the Massachusetts Bay <laughs> colony, all the way up to the founding of America and the drafting mm. of the Declaration of Independence and so forth? Mm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in so many ways, Americans continue to see themselves um, in very theological terms. So like in the 17th century, early 18th century, Americans were, you know, saw themselves as loyal British subjects, and they saw the, you know, the English nation as being God's chosen people as a whole, especially in the colonial wars with the French that go on in the late 17th and first half of the 18th century. So in in the French and Indian War, the American colonists saw the French as being the Antichrist and that uh, they were contending for, you know, God's God's chosen people, the English, and fighting against the, uh, the 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 papal powers represented by the French. But then by the time you get into the revolutionary period, um, so the late 1760s, 1770s, and 1780s, the idea of an antichrist is less the French and now becomes King George and Parliament. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, the colonists see themselves as a chosen people. And this is fueled by the preaching of revolutionary preachers, especially in New England. But um, the preaching is, um, you know... It, it just takes off in in all thirteen colonies, and uh, there's a long backstory to how that happens through the first Great Awakening and right. the uh, explosion of revivals that go on in the uh, first Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, 50s, and, and and on after that. So, by the time you get to the Revolutionary Period, the colonists no longer see themselves as part of you know God's chosen nation of of Englishmen. They think that England is now 
the Antichrist, and they're going to go to war and wage a holy war against uh, King George III, the great tyrant in Parliament. Right. Exactly. So the Antichrist changes, but there's still this impetus that we are chosen by God, we are special, and so forth. Yes. So when you talk about the other uh, branch of American exceptionalism, understanding Mm. the political social way of understanding Mm. it, how does that diverge from what we saw and discussed about the theological version of it? Well, what I, what I try to argue in the book is that you see a, a divergence uh, of, from a theological view to a political social view. And this happens in the 1850s, and especially in the 1860s, with the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Abraham Lincoln um, is the first of our presidents to no longer have this really strong providential view of God's favoring the United States. He does see America in in exceptionalist terms. He calls America the last best hope of Earth in December of 1862 in a message to Congress that he sends them. Uh, but, But his view of providence is he doesn't know. He can't say with certainty if God is on... You know our side in the Civil War. He he says to a group of clergy in 1862 to correct them. He, you know this group of clergy at the White House said, well, "We know that God is on our side." And Abraham Lincoln says, "I disagree with that." He says, uh, "You know I'm mainly concerned if we're on God's side. Mm. We we can't know uh, whose side God is on. We don't know what God's overall purpose is." He actually says this in his second inaugural address. You know he says that the Almighty has. You know, he, he has his own purposes, and, and it, who knows if he might want us to keep on fighting. It's March of 1865, the war is wrapping up, but nevertheless, he still says, you know, we, we, we might have to, the war might go on in that second inaugural. But, but he still believes, he still says that because of the Declaration of Independence, because of uh, the articulation of all men being created equal, um, you, you know, the, the articulation of natural rights that's expressed uh, in the Declaration of Independence. I mean, for Lincoln, the Declaration of Independence is what really sets America apart from, uh, from, from all of human history. And he, he casts this in political terms, not so strongly theological terms as people have, had done so before him. Right. So things shifted. And yeah. and this brings us down to our own day where we see people taking it even further, don't we? We're not only mm-hmm. not exceptional, perhaps, in the way that the Puritans would have understood us as being God's chosen nation, but perhaps we are a nation that is bad, too. And this is where it gets mm-hmm. pretty muddled, doesn't it, in our day it for does. a lot of people? It does. And I think that... Um you know, American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, nineteenth century. These concepts have always been contended over by Americans. Always, um, it's, we're not reaching like a new period where this is the first time Americans have seen themselves as not the greatest country in the world. I mean, that's yeah. it's something that Americans have always fought about. We can go back to the eighteen forties, and they fought about that. You know, in the context of the Mexican War, but but certainly since the nineteen sixties, since. Vietnam, since Watergate. It's been a problem. Hang on just a moment. Dr. Wilson will be coming back. American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. Dr. John Wilson and I returning on Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. 
when a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child. Perhaps the dad's gone. Perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort. But what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We have long heard the term American exceptionalism. What does it really mean? We're discussing with Dr. John Wilsey, author of American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. And we've been talking a little bit about these two different versions of American exceptionalism, two different understandings of this term. Now, coming down into our day, one of the things you say, Dr. Wilsey, is that some of these theological commitments associated with American exceptionalism really do conflict with some important doctrines of the Christian faith. What are you talking about there? Yeah, so I identify five theological commitments that are entailed in a theological view of American exceptionalism, and I try to argue that those conflict with Christianity because they hijack from Christian theological doctrines. So, for example, the doctrine of election, which is a high doctrine in Christianity, surrounded by the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and so forth and so on. The idea that that America is chosen, it's God's elect, uh, is not the biblical expression of the doctrine of election, especially in the New Testament. Yes. In the New Testament, First Peter chapter 2, the church is identified as God's chosen people, God's elect nation. And to call America God's elect nation is in contradiction to what Scripture teaches, right. and Christians should disabuse that. They should, dis- they should disavow themselves of that, of that notion. Also, the idea of divine commission, that God has chosen America to uh, carry out a specific mission in the world. Um, someone like John Foster Dulles, who's Secretary of State under Eisenhower, he calls on the Great Commission of Christ in Matthew 28 and applies it to the United States. Hmm. Uh, and that is also hijacking a very important command, the Great Commission that Christians are given to, you know, reach the world for Christ. Right, make um, disciples. So these are just two examples. I cover five in the book. And they're very dangerous. They can, they, what they can do is they can make 
They can make America itself an object of worship instead of Jesus Christ. That is a really important point, and especially for those of us who love the United States and yet love the Word of God and say, the Word of God says what it says, and it doesn't say America is a chosen nation anywhere in the Word of God. You're exactly right about that. The, The problem, I think, comes down to there are Christians who will come out and say, in a way, we should think less of America because we cannot find any biblical support for the fact that America is a chosen nation. That leaves a lot of Christians kind of flailing in the wind and saying, but I love my country and I do appreciate living in a land that's so unique and free and we have liberty and free speech and all the rest. How do you tell Christians to think about their country in a way that is appropriate, but also not elevating it to the status of Israel? Right. Exactly. Well, kind of think about it like your family. You know, when you think about your family, you, you favor your family over other families. Right. I mean, certainly, you look at your mother and father, you look at your husband, your wife, your children, and, you, and you, your favor is on them, and you place the priority on them above any other family that you know. Yes. But you don't look at your family and say, my family is perfect, my children are perfect, my husband and my wife are perfect, my parents are perfect. <laughs> They're, you, know, you, you know that your, your family is still flawed, but, but you still love them and you still hold them above every other family. You don't think you're necessarily better than any other family, but you do put your priority on your family. And I think that that helps us to think about patriotism. We recognize that our country is not flawless. We have committed ills in the past, and we continue to commit ills today. Our, we're a country of sinners. We are made up of sin, sinful people, just like every other nation. However, there are aspects of Amer- the American identity, the American character, American history, that can be said to be exceptional. We have led the way in, in the modern world in representative democracy. You know, we're not perfect at it. But we've led the way. We've led the way in extolling human dignity in a political, you know, in a, in a polity, in a, in a political, you know, state. We, we, have, we have championed that uh, more, more consistently than any other country. That's exceptional, and that's something that we can be, you know, proud of, and it's something that we also want to champion and forward into the future. But we don't say that America is flawless. No. We work to... Cr- and that's one of the things Americans have always done. Americans have, have always looked to the past and seen where it's made mistakes and, and worked to correct them, which is one of the great things about America. Something else I would argue is exceptional about America. Sure. And, and right. For example, when you talk about slavery, mm. we, we had slavery and the scourge of slavery in the United States and America, but we also got rid of it. I mean, that also is to the credit of America. It was a bloody war that, that took its toll yeah. on all of us. But in the yeah. end, that was corrected. Now, one of the things that I think is interesting, I'll be interested to hear your comment on this. There are also a lot of Christians, I hear from them all the time, who are very frustrated with the uh, kind of the idea that we should blame America first. There's a lot of America blame going on. Yeah, um, yeah. And we get sick of hearing that because we love our country and compared yeah, to a definitely. lot of countries around the world, it's like, no, why would you get on America's case? We have a lot to recommend us. On the other hand, Christians are frustrated because they see the culture going down. They see yeah. a lot of immorality, a lot of pornography and abortion and the homosexual issue, et cetera, et cetera. Socially speaking, yeah. things yeah. are a mess. So on the one hand, you're saying, I don't want to hate America. I love America, but I don't yeah. see America going down. How do I love my country as my country is seemingly to a lot of people falling apart? Yeah, I would say for Christians, 
uh, you know, I, I look to a couple of examples in, in the book. For one, someone like Justin Martyr, who's a, you know, second century apologist. Right. And even someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, an African-American leader who, who in his early career, you know, he talks about um, uh, being, being both an American and a Negro and how, you know, the American ideals of human dignity, especially, are championed by Americans. And so, you know, Du Bois, he looks at America and looks at its faults and says, we can do better than this in his early career. Um, Justin Martyr, as a Christian, he addresses uh, his persecutors, the, the state, the Roman state, and says, you know, uh, don't, don't persecute us. Um, he, here's, what, here's what Christianity really is, and here's what it's not, and so forth. So, you know, civic engagement is what we're talking about, Christian civic engagement. Christians need to be involved in the political and social arena, we need to contend for our faith and contend for our morals and, you know, be thankful for the fact that we have a, a platform to do it. We have the right to do it and to not be afraid to say that America has failed in certain areas, but to rightfully critique those who, who do seek to blame America first, because that's not a that's not a just application. Right. Right. It's not it's not just to point the finger at America all the time. For sometimes it is, but we have to be wise. We sort of have to be, you know, as, as wise as serpents and innocent as doves in this, in this regard. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a complicated question, but it, where, where we are in our own little sphere of influence, that's where we start. That's good. That's really good. The other thing I think can be beneficial for Christians is when we are going through a time of struggle in our country, it really kind of clarifies for a lot of Christians that the cross does wave higher than the flag. As some mm-hmm. have said, that Christ has our ultimate allegiance. How yeah. does that actually help us when we separate those two things? I'm a patriotic American, but ultimately I'm a Christian first. You know, as we said a second ago, theological exceptionalism is contrary to the Christian faith. But exceptionalism that is a political or social construct, what I call open exceptionalism in the book, these things, they don't complement Christianity, but they, but they dovetail nicely with Christian doctrine. So, for example, human dignity. We are created in the image of God. Uh, the fact that we enjoy these natural rights and the fact that we proclaim to the world that we respect the equality of, of all human beings, this fits in very nicely with what Genesis 1 and 2 teach about the being created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Um, they, so that's what I mean when, when you know, American ideals that are expressed in the founding documents, expressed in the Gettysburg Address and in Lincoln's second inaugural, they dovetail well with Christian doctrine. And so, you know, being a, being a follower of Christ and being a loyal patriot are not uh, mutually, you know, opposed to one another in that yes. regard. Yeah, I totally understand that. Do you think that the concept of American exceptionalism is very different now than it was at the beginning of our, our founding? Mm. You know, you mentioned uh, President Obama at the beginning. One of the things that I look at with Obama um, is that he does a lot of self-examination whenever he talks about ex- exceptionalism. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's, it's, it's very much in contrast to someone like Reagan, who didn't do that. But the whole idea of self, national self-examination, it goes back to the Puritans. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Puritans were heavy in that. And so, you know, I don't think that it would be right to say Obama's a Puritan. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, but, but when, he, when he 
engages in some national self-examination. He does so in a long tradition that goes back to the 17th century. Very interesting. It's yeah, all it very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Well, the yeah. name of the book, I just want to tell you again, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea. Dr. John Wilsey spending time with us. It was great to have you, Dr. Wilsey. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. My pleasure. Take care. God bless you. And thank you so much for tuning in today to Janet Mefford Today. Our website, JanetMefford.com. God bless.